Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Sharper Than the Sword. And in today's episode, we are going to be talking about the most central aspect of the Christian faith, the gospel. And so while I had some spare time until college starts up again this summer, I thought that I would start this podcast back up temporarily. I may have to cut it off um, in a month or so, but we will see how it goes. So um, what is the gospel? Why are some Christians constantly talking about it? What impact does it have on me? Those are some of the questions that we will be attempting to answer today. To explain the gospel correctly, first I want to explain what the gospel is not. The gospel is not something we hear to get right with God just to fall back into sinful lifestyles and to be a hypocrite. The gospel is not something that should puff anyone up. The gospel does not pay our bills, get us a fancy car, or fix our broken marriage. Now, a repaired marriage may be a benefit to us becoming Christian, but it is not the reason why we get saved. The gospel does not make us wealthy or healthy, as some uh, popular prosperity preachers may tell you. In reality, the gospel shouldn't even make us feel good at all. The reason for this is that the gospel reveals something about us that all of us, as humans, should cringe at. We are sinners separated from God forever, and his wrath rests on the natural man. The Bible says that we are actively suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and that though we know God exists, we refuse to be grateful to him or give thanks to him. Instead of loving God, we love ourselves and our sin. Our natural state is incredibly broken, and without an inward transformation done by the Holy Spirit, Rest assured, we will have no hope for eternity. In the Old Testament, the natural unregenerate man is exposed for what he is, a rebel. God gave Israel every chance he could to repent and follow him, but they chose not to. In Exodus 19.5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Someone might say in response to this that God failed to bring Israel to himself and that their stubbornness overrode God's plan to make them a kingdom of priests. But God's scope widened beyond that people at that specific place at that specific time to all people who would trust in Jesus for salvation. In Revelation 1, we can conclude that the kingdom of priests is not the physical Israel, but it is the spiritual Israel populated by all God's chosen people. It says, starting in verse 5, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. Isn't that awesome? God's plan for humanity succeeded in Jesus. In, In the climax of the Bible, we see God in flesh coming to reconcile all peoples to himself, and he makes Everybody, not just Israel, not just physical Israel, all people who would ever trust in God alone for salvation, they become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that is beautiful, despite Israel's stubbornness at that time. 
So before we can understand the gospel and how we ought to respond, we must understand our natural state before God or our natural condition before God. We are condemned because of our unrighteousness. It says in Romans 2, 6, that God will render to each one according to his works. And in Romans 3, 9, it says that both Jews and Greeks, in other words, Jews and Gentiles and all people everywhere, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So from the words of God himself, we are in serious trouble. We have all told lies, blasphemed God's name by using it flippantly. We have committed adultery by looking at others with lust, as Jesus reveals in Matthew 5.28. And we have all murdered in our heart by hating people without cause. And that's not even getting into loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just a moment ago, we read that no one seeks for God. So how can man who does not seek God love God? Answer? He cannot. The natural man is unable to love God. During the time of Israel, people were given an external law, the Ten Commandments, which is what we just went over. It said, you shall not bear false witness or lie. You shall not murder. You shall not serve any other gods before Yahweh, and etc. But what the Old Testament was pointing to is the fact that we need an internal change. That is one of the reasons why Jesus got into arguments with the Pharisees all the time. The Pharisees were a group of Jews who changed the Jewish Jewish law to extend the actual law that Moses gave. It was very strange. One of these laws that they had changed is the case of adultery. Moses had said in the law that you shall not commit adultery. So the Pharisees would take this to mean merely The external act of adultery is wrong. But Jesus says, no, actually, adultery begins in the heart by simply looking at a woman with lust. In 2 Corinthians 3.3, Paul shows us that the difference um, of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the external and internal change. It says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The book of Jeremiah also gives us an insight into the heart of man. In chapter 17, verse 9, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This does away with age-old saying, follow your heart. No, please do not do that. So what does God say in response to this? All people have wicked hearts and they don't seek after him. So what does God do? He promises to give them a new heart. In Jeremiah 24, 7, God says that he will give his people a heart to know that he is the Lord. In chapter 31, 33, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Did you catch that? The change is internal, not external. That's why all of our works, everything we do to try and be good, is like filthy rags before God. 
One promise of God that was given to the prophet Jeremiah that's especially beautiful, by the way, is in chapter 32, verses 39 through 41. It says, I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God rejoices in doing his children good. If you are in Christ, if you are saved, God not only does you good just because that's his covenant, and that's just what he has to do because of Christ. Well, he doesn't have to do anything. Forget I said that. But God rejoices in doing you good. Isn't that beautiful that the God of this universe rejoices in doing you good? That God rejoices doing me good, a wretched sinner that sins against him every single day, that turns after worthless things. God rejoices in doing me good. That's amazing. So anyway, sorry for the tangent. Um, But God desires the internal change, which only he can accomplish. The heart is even still wicked after we are saved, but we now have the ability to love and fear God now that we are put in a right position with God. We have already broken God's law, as we have established before, and our external efforts to gain God's favor do nothing for us and do not change our standing before God. Yes, hell is a real place, but using hell as a tactic for evangelism often scares away many people. It should be mentioned that it is real. We shouldn't say, oh yeah, hell's just, you know, it's just a saying. It's not actually real. You know, it's made up by man. No, it's not. It's real. It's the lake of fire, which there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, And the the unrighteous will be in hell. That's just a fact. Anybody who does not trust in Christ alone for their salvation will be in hell. That that's not, that's an unavoidable reality. But someone who is merely scared of hell is not actually genuinely repenting. And uh, it should not be our only goal to just scare people by mentioning hell. So because of our sin, not only does God appoint us to a spiritual death in hell, but our body perishes. In Romans 6.23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our punishment or wages for our sin is death. Because we sin, the wages given to us is death. It's just like me working at a job. If I'm sweeping the floor for five hours, uh, my employer is required to give me wages. So our sin requires God to give us wages, which is death. So the Father gives our wages to Jesus, not us. Um, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin that we all deserved, death in order to absorb God's wrath. Isaiah 53 makes perfect sense of this exchange. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor, nor, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. By the way, this is all talking about Jesus. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. In other words, he didn't protest his death. He wasn't going against his death. He was willingly doing it. It says um, that nobody has the authority to take away his life, but he willingly gives it. He willingly lays down his life in John 10 because he loves his sheep. In verse 7, it continues, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. By the way, that is an allusion to Christ's death. For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, his grave was, his grave was assigned with wicked men, Yet he was with a rich man in his death. By the way, Jesus was with a rich man in his death. He was buried in Joseph's tomb. And Joseph was a very wealthy man. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This is an allusion to Jesus living a perfectly righteous life, which we will get to later. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering... He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. That's an allusion to Christ's resurrection. He will see his own offspring and he will prolong his days. God will prolong the days of Jesus living on earth. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was numbered as a sinner. Jesus died taking the penalty of our death on the cross. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Yes, Jesus continues to intercede on our behalf to the Father, that our faith may not fail, as Jesus um, told P Peter when Satan uh, went to Jesus, said, asked Jesus, hey, I want to sift Peter like wheat. I want to test Peter. And Jesus told Peter, hey, by the way, Satan came to me, told, asked me if, um, if he could sift you like wheat, and I pray that your faith may not fail. That is Jesus acting as an intercessor on Peter's behalf, and so he intercedes on our behalf. So, our punishment or wages for our sin is death, and in Romans 5 we are told that death spread to all men because of sin. So what is our response to the gospel? Repentance and faith. Those are the two things that go hand in hand together as we are saved. 
From the lips of Jesus, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The difference between man-centered religion and trust in Jesus is that our faith is what saves us, not our works. In other words, trying to be good does nothing. If we are judging ourselves based on the law and trying to obey the law, all we realize is that we are unable to follow the law. And that's why we need Jesus, who, being God in the flesh, fulfilled the entire law perfectly, which was something that no other human being can do. No human being in the history of human beings can do that. Only God is good. Only God can fulfill the law perfectly. And so Jesus' perfect obedience is transferred to us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we inherit Jesus' perfect obedience as a result of us being saved. So why should we repent? Because the Lord is perfectly satisfying. And an eternity with him is the only hope we can have in this broken world. All the things of this world fade away. All sin is empty and lead to death. But sin with, or (laughs) not sin, but life with God for eternity will fill our soul with joy forever and ever and ever. Everything you've ever wanted or needed is found in the very presence of the Lord. In Psalm 16, David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. Nothing in this world satisfied David. It goes on to say, You make known to me the path of life, and your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I can honestly say that I delight in who God is and what he is now that my eyes are open. The only thing that fills my heart with joy is knowing that I will see him face to face as he is and be counted not guilty before him. Because of Jesus, I can now live forever and I get to live forever in the presence of the creator. Have you ever seen a beautiful sunset across a lake? Have you ever tasted a delicious meal? Have you ever heard a beautiful symphony? The one who created all of that, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who knitted us so intricately in our mother's womb has made a way for us to be with him. And his presence is the apex of our enjoyment. Nothing gets better than that. So we need to turn from our sin or repent and trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. All the great prophets have died, and all their gods were crafted by men. Muhammad and Buddha are dead, but Jesus is alive. Jesus actually was raised from the dead. All 12 apostles, with the exception of John, who lived for a long time after um, Jesus died, um, willingly went to their deaths for what they had seen, the risen Lord. Peter was so scared of death and even being found out as a, as a disciple of Jesus that he denied Jesus three times. And all the disciples after Jesus was arrested went their own way out of fear. They, owned, they, they all scattered. But what do we see in the book of Acts? They're in the street, boldly preaching Christ. They're put in prison, beaten to a pulp, and they don't even care. 
Isn't that astonishing? They all went to their deaths willingly and joyfully because they knew Jesus had risen from the dead. And we know that from psychology, no one dies for what they know for a fact is not true. Objections to this amazing reality is that there are many martyrs from history from all different kinds of religion. But the unique thing about this case is that these apostles would have known that what they were dying for was a lie because they were the originators of the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. They would have known if they were preaching a lie. They would have known if they were preaching the truth. And what they did by willingly going to their deaths proves that they were convinced of the truth and they knew the truth. And that is why Christianity has shaken up the entire world. Just think about the most powerful empire that's maybe ever lived. The Roman Empire was flipped from throwing Christians to the lions and and impaling Christians and lighting them on fire for parties, flipped and became Christian. And we we don't know if Constantine was actually a Christian, but he sure claimed to be a Christian. The entire Roman Empire was flipped upside down. The whole world was flipped upside down. What year were you born? I was born in 2001, years after Christ. Just think about that. One carpenter from Nazareth, who was considered a nobody, flipped the entire world upside down. That's a miracle. That's impossible. But it's only possible if the claim of Jesus rising from the dead were true, and they sure were convinced of that. The fact of the empty tomb should cause you to at least consider the possibility that if it was true, it would change everything. It would mean that Jesus is who he said he was. It would mean that God actually has made a way for us and that we can actually have eternal life in his presence. And it would mean that we're actually not descendants of bacteria, but that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God himself. But it would also mean that if we don't repent, we will perish forever with no hope and no joy. So I urge you, if you have not repented or turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, please do so. And if you are unfamiliar with what I mean by trusting in Christ, here's a good analogy from an online evangelist, Ray Comfort. Say you're 30,000 feet in the air and you're skydiving. Are you going to flap your arms to save yourself? No, you're going to pull the string to your parachute and rely on your parachute alone. The same thing goes for the saving relationship with Jesus. You must trust him alone to save you. Don't trust yourself or your works because as we have already talked about, they are nothing in God's eyes. Nothing you can do to be good will satisfy God. So cry out to God from your heart. Pray and ask God to change your sinful heart and receive his mercy. A good place to start is reading Psalm 51. Read Psalm 51 out loud and pray the psalm back to God. You know, just say, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. According to your loving kindness shown in this book, the Bible, have mercy on me, a sinner. And repent of your sin. Turn from your sin and pursue God. Pursue and seek the living God. And what you'll find is that God will cause you to love righteousness and will cause you to hate sin more and more. 
what you'll find is that the God of the universe who created you, you will actually delight in his word. You'll delight in spending time with him in his word. That's a beautiful thing. There is nothing better than spending time in the word with God. And that is something that I honestly delight in with all of my heart. There's nothing that fills my heart like that does. And there's nothing that will fill your heart more than knowing that you have a relationship with the living God. If you think you have repented and you're not sure if it was genuine, I would recommend going through the book of 1 John and evaluating your own walk with the Lord. I would also recommend that if you're going to read 1 John that you accompany it with a sermon from Grace to You, John MacArthur, who is a faithful man of God, um, a great preacher, or Paul Washer, because they can explain what the scripture is actually saying. There are some things in 1 John that sound really bad, um, that sound really unhopeful, but um, in reality, there are just some technicalities with that that you need to pay attention to, Um, and there are also some contextual things too, Um, and John MacArthur or Paul Washer will be able to explain that. Um, But anyway... That will help you tremendously. I know it uh, helps me also tremendously. So um, that's also one thing you could do. So repent of your sin and trust Christ alone. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust failed religious leaders. Don't trust politicians. And don't trust material things of this world. They all fade away. They all fail Trust the risen Lord and he will save you from your sins and cause you to be born again to a living hope. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sharper Than the Sword. For more, please subscribe. um, And I'd really appreciate it if you would even leave a review or even just a five-star rating um, or a four-star or a three-star, depending on if you liked it or not. Um, So I pray that this will be a blessing to you and have a great rest of your week and God bless.